Recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. Today's guest on IQ Radio is Francis Bud J. Offerman. Mr. Offerman has 25 years' experience as an IEQ researcher, sick building investigator, mitigation planner, healthy building design consultant, expert witness, technical author, and workshop instructor. He is president of Indoor Environmental Engineering, a San Francisco-based IEQ consulting firm. Under Mr. Offerman's supervision, IEE has developed both proactive and reactive IEQ measurement methods and diagnostic protocols. He has been a recipient of state and federal research grants regarding building air quality and ventilation field studies in office buildings and schools. Prior to starting up, Indoor environmental engineering, Mr. Offerman was a staff scientist with the Building Ventilation and Indoor Air Quality Program, Energy Environment Division at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory in Berkeley, California. Uh, are you with us, bud? Okay. Bud, are you there? I am. Perfect, perfect. And you sound great. And uh, that's how's the weather out in California today? Uh, it's wonderful. It's uh, about seventy-five degrees and gorgeous. Yeah. Low humidity. How was that? Yeah, I flew back actually from John Wayne Airport myself yesterday, and the weather was really nice uh, while we were out there. Okay, Joe, do you want to ask the first question? Uh, thanks again for joining us. Oh, I just got unmuted. Thanks again for joining us, Bud. It's great to have you. And uh, what we'd like to do is first start with a little uh, background on uh, what you did uh, prior to starting IEE. Well, um <clears throat> Basically started off, um, uh, uh, went to uh, engineering school at Rensselaer Polytech Institute, then um, came out to California and uh, was a staff scientist at Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory. That was about 1979, and uh, they had an indoor air quality program there, and they happened to have, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York, so um, this indoor air quality program was doing a research project in Rochester, New York, and uh, that seemed to be a good thing for me. I'd, so I um, took the job and uh, worked there for five years, and then off to graduate school, uh, mechanical engineering again, and this time at Stanford, and then pretty much been uh, working um, with indoor environmental engineering here. We're, we're a forensic uh, research indoor air quality group in San Francisco, and I guess this is our 30th year. Great, and uh, 30 years of doing indoor air quality work, has that been your primary focus for the entire 30 years? Yeah, and and, and specifically, you know, uh, uh, we're not doing industrial, right, uh, typically, 
Um, this is primarily uh, offices, residential, schools, hospitals, so air quality in non-industrial kind of applications. So yeah, it, some people would say kind of a niche field still. Yeah, that was, I, I guess you, you kind of read my mind. I'm wondering, um, as indoor air quality became more popular, let's say, toward the end of the 90s, I know in the early 90s, I, uh, EPA came out with um, managing indoor air. That was probably started a little bump in business. But then at the end of the 90s and the early 2000 era with the mold is gold rush, um, have you noticed mm -hmm. a drop-off in business or more competition? or um, how, how has that affected your business? Well, well, two things. Uh, the the field has grown. Um, it's gotten bigger. Uh, the talent is diluted, of course. We have a lot of uh, newbies in the field, especially with the mold thing where they take a class for a day or so. Um, and mold uh, was, uh, you know, water's a big thing, three-quarters of the earth, and uh, water intrusion in buildings is uh, is a big issue. And as you were saying earlier in, uh, uh, like, the uh, 1990s, um, mold uh, was um, uh, people were, were hysterical about it. It was uh, and, and and just crazy. And now the the hysteria has pretty much subsided, and um, uh, there's still mold in buildings, but people aren't burning their homes down because of it, which is a good thing. And um, but there's a lot more people in the field. Uh, but the, the talent has been diluted at the low end. So, but, but can you give us a definition of safe air inside a home or inside a building or inside a school? Mm -hmm. Well, um, the, the whole idea of safe building air arose out of um, uh, really my colleague and the uh, uh, the, the chair of the ASHRAE Environmental Health Committee. This is a committee that flies a little bit under the radar at ASHRAE. It's a presidentially appointed committee. And Bill McCoy, during his tenure of chair last year, uh, had a mission uh, to define safe building air and, and safe building water. Now, the whole idea of safe and air uh, is really a term that's kind of come more out of the water industry. We talk about the Safe you know, Drinking Water Act and stuff like that. But the whole uh, impetus of this um, pursuit of defining what safe is for air and water was really out of the recognition that the pursuit of net zero energy buildings could very well have some bad unintended consequences. Um, we all remember the oil embargo in the 1970s and the unintended consequences of turning uh, down lighting, turning off the uh, ventilation, reducing outside air, and the term sick building syndrome was coined out of that. So what we don't want to have uh, happen, and uh, I did write Dr. Chu, our new uh, energy secretary, a letter regarding this. Just remember that Buildings are for people, uh, and health trumps energy. So uh, you can have uh, a healthy building and be energy efficient, but uh, you have to be careful how you go about it. So getting back to your question, safe building air. 
Um, when I was first charged with this to come up with this definition, I was like, okay, uh, you know, we'll, we'll uh, work on that. And it became clear that um, as I thought about this on the uh, flight back to California, that we really can't define um, in the ultimate sense safe building air because we don't really have that Star Trek tricorder, you know, that measures everything. Uh, in fact, when people come and ask for, you know, to come and see if the air is checked the air in their building, um, we often have to develop hypotheses about what it might be so we can narrow it down to what you might be investigating. So given that, we, it's basically can we define unsafe air? Yeah. And, uh, unsafe. Can we, can we define the converse, not safe air? Safe building air, uh, we're not going to ultimately be able to define that in the near term, but we can say what's not safe. Um, you know, when we measure air contaminants and are above guidelines, we say that's not good. And just to bring this little thread to a conclusion, in the document that we are writing up at ASHRAE on this, um, really where we're pursuing is more of a risk management-based definition of safe building air. That because you can't measure everything and just say, it's okay, it's safe, what you'll do is you'll, um, you'll make sure that your uh, building doesn't have certain risk factors, namely, uh, not enough outside air, or it smells, or there's lots of clutter, all these things that aren't really the, the physical agent that uh, is attacking the body, but are risk factors that would allow such a thing to happen. So that's where we stand on that. When I was uh, reviewing, I guess it was an AIHA presentation you did on this safe building air issue, but and um, I saw your uh, graphic there of the tricorder. I understand that you know we don't have the type of equipment that could measure everything possibly that could be wrong. Can you give us an example of a situation where even with, you know, we have some pretty sophisticated instrumentation nowadays and laboratory analysis, et cetera. Can you give us an example of a situation today where even with this sophisticated equipment we have, we really can't determine if the uh, issue is one that would be at the level of being unsafe. Yeah. Well, here would be, you know, an example of unhealthy air not diagnosable by air testing. Okay, you have a laser printer test laboratory. This is where they test out laser printers. They got a bunch of them. Um, the occupants have respiratory irritation, chest tight, tight, tightness, and some of them are wearing disposable respirators and achieve some relief. There's clearly a respiratory irritant in air, and you, and you go in with the air testing approach, and you measure the volatile organic compounds using mass spectrometry, aldehydes using uh, high-pressure liquid chromatography, particles, ozone. You measure everything you can think of um, that might be as a result of this operation. And everything's below all the guidelines. And we're not talking OSHA guidelines here. We're talking non-industrial exposure guidelines. Um, in fact, they're all even below what we found in the EPA base study. Uh, so everything looks great. So what's wrong? Well, the, the hypothesis is that there's respiratory irritation caused by exposure to ultrafine particles of cyclic siloxane. These are oily substances vaporized in printing process. But 
um, there's no exposure guidelines for these silicon compounds at this time. So yes, you could measure for those things, but as uh, one of my mentors always tells me, don't measure something unless you know what you're going to do with it. And if you have no interpretive framework, then you're kind of stuck with a number, but not knowing if it's good. So we think it's these siloxane compounds that are causing things. And this industry uh, really needs to do the health studies to identify what are the threshold limits for these types of compounds. So that's one example. But you mentioned another study that um, I was going to ask you about anyway, and that's the EPA-based study of office buildings. Can you give us a little summary of um, what that study was about and how listeners can get a copy? Okay. Well, first, listeners, just go to the EPA Indoor Air website. Just type up MB EPA Indoor Air into Google, and they'll take you there. And you'll see um, where you can get the base. Um, well, it's not just – it's a big study. It's 100 office buildings. Um, the, the buildings were studied for a week or so, and it's a very rich data set. There are a number of papers that have been written out of this. You could also, if you want, if you're a researcher, you can actually get on a CD uh, in SAS and uh, access format uh, the data set. But the, the whole idea behind this was to collect data so that you knew kind of what the baseline was. And as a sick building investigator, when we're doing this uh, type of stuff, um, it's very nice to be able to tell uh, the client not only that his concentration is below whatever guideline, uh, but here's your percentile. You're at the, and I think everyone would like to be kind of in the middle of the pack or less, right? Like the 50 percentile. You don't want to be at the 100th percentile. Uh, if you are, you're really the epidemiological study. We'll be watching, you know, what's happening to you. So it's a nice data set to have, and it's nice to be able to put people's measurements, uh, or when you make measurements in a building, to use that as a part of the uh, uh, discussion point of what their exposure is. How old is that study, bud? Oh, it's really, uh, it's, it must be about... 15 years old now, 10 years old, 15. Okay, great. All right, there's another uh, project that I don't know if we mentioned it yet today, but I I saw it on uh, your website, Mm -hmm. the INDEX project, uh, Frequently Encountered Indoor Air Contaminants. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Well, these are from our European colleagues, and as you know, uh, the indoor air quality field is not led by the United States. Uh, the, uh, my mentors are, uh, um, are out of uh, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, so these Nordic countries uh, um, where there's cold climates, there are affluent societies, and they've built tight homes, and they've been dealing this with longer than us. So um, the European community uh, had this index project with the purpose was to, um, to really identify what are the important contaminants um, um, where we really know what the health endpoints are and where, where we know that there's significant exposures. And so, um, again, if you Google that up, you can download the index project uh, report and it identifies, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, for example, formaldehyde is known to be uh, 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 very prevalent 
and uh, something with well-known health effects, uh, uh, irritancy, cancer. Um, benzene is another one, too, with well-known health points and uh, is frequently uh, encountered in buildings. So that was the purpose of that study. I see. Now, I, I left one out that had intrigued me back to your um, AIHA study for just a moment, or your presentation at AIHA. I noticed in those slides, you had one slide about how to determine if carbon monoxide levels are statistically significant <laughs> indoors versus outdoors. And yeah. that really intrigued me because we get a lot of people with questions about, you know, carbon monoxide and what types of levels would be uh, acceptable. Obviously, there's PELs and, and TLVs, et cetera. Right. But, you know, for indoor environments, what type of levels would be acceptable? Can you talk right. to us a little bit about sure. how you do that? Yeah, well, uh, absolutely. Um, um, the guideline uh, uh that we uh, would select, for instance, uh, for the ASHRAE safe air criteria would be the EPA NAQS guideline of nine parts per million. Um, this is for like an eight-hour exposure. And so if we go into an office building and we see that the concentrations are, let's say, um, you know, seven ppm, you'd say, well, that's below nine. I guess we're okay. Well, this is where the risk factor or risk management comes in. You also measure outdoors, and you measure outdoors, and it's one part per million. And in indoors, you're seven. You're under the guideline, but because the indoor concentration is higher than the outdoor concentration, that data by itself says that there's a source of carbon monoxide being generated in the building. And since carbon monoxide can kill people, uh, one needs to uh, take that as a big red flashing light and... Um, find out what that source is. So perhaps it's going to get worse and uh, we're going to have a catastrophe. So the guideline is typically set to be, yes, we'd like to be under 9 ppm, but we also do not want to see concentrations higher indoors and outdoors. And that's where, just like with mold, uh, you have to bring some statistics into play because, uh, like, for instance, if you have 32 mold spores uh, indoors and uh, 28 spores per cubic meters outdoors. Is that significantly different? No. Uh, with carbon monoxide, we're looking at typically what the instrumentation we're using is like a 2 ppm difference. Um, so uh, that's where we stand. Uh, that's where we're looking at interpreting carbon monoxide. We, do, we don't want to see it uh, more than a couple ppm above outdoors. And I'm just curious, uh, when you're monitoring or when you're doing some uh, investigation, you're looking at carbon monoxide uh, levels in a building. What what number of samples are you looking at taking there? I mean, how many different readings are you getting and what type of instrumentation do you prefer to use? Well, um, well let me raise, we do have a problem with the electric, I mean, the most common detector out there that TSI and uh, other people make is the tri-electrode electrochemical sensor. And we discovered in our research project in California of 100 homes recently that uh, the sensor has a positive interference to water vapor. Now, here's the problem. You're outside, you're, again, you're measuring indoors always and always measuring outdoors. Um, 
and you measure um, four ppm indoors. And outdoors, it's raining like a dickens. You got your umbrella. It's 100% humidity, and you measure four ppm. And you go, oh, it's four ppm indoors, four ppm outdoors. It's the same. It's under nine ppm. We're okay. Wrong. Uh, there's about a four ppm uh, positive interference with uh, high water vapor concentration. So the real concentration of uh, carbon monoxide outside uh, in this scenario might be one ppm but the instrument's reading incorrectly, it's giving you a false four. So you really have four indoors, which is a real four, and a false four, which is really one outdoors, which is, uh, again, a, a risk factor that needs to be evaluated. So um, we need to, uh, uh, TSI has been aware of this for a couple of years now. Um, I don't know if they've done anything about it. Uh, it's not just them, it's pretty much endemic to the this type of sensor. So. Um, um, if you're in high water vapor uh, atmosphere, uh, outdoors in the rain or something like that, just remember that uh, you can have a 3 to 4 ppm extra uh, reading that's not really carbon monoxide. That's a great, great tip for uh, our listeners and especially those that are doing investigations. But what I'd like to do here is um, we're, we're going to go into the green buildings in uh, just a moment, but... Before we do, uh, we usually take a halftime break. We're having some technical difficulties today, so for those of you listening in, I'm conducting the interview here by phone. Uh, we're not going to have any music or anything like that, but I do want to stop here for halftime for just a moment, and I want to make sure that we thank our sponsors, and I also have another important announcement that we'd like to make. So, Bud, um, we're going to join, you, bring you right back in just a moment. All right. We're uh, delighted to have as our first association sponsor the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. We also want to thank Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.org. ProRestore for cleaning, odor removal, and antimicrobial products, remediators trust and depend on. Visit them at ProRestoreProducts.com. And, of course, our primary sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com, DryEase Products, providing <coughs> equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings, DryEase is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. And Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years at legendsenviro.com. Legends-enviro.com, I should say. Okay, um, let's get... Uh, Glenn and Dieter unmuted if we can. I'm not sure if the guys can do that from the studio. Hello, Dieter. Or can Glenn. hear you. I don't know what. There we go. We got you guys. Okay. Uh, uh, I can hear you. I don't. Can you hear me? We hear you fine, Dieter. Oh, okay. Welcome to the show. Any questions or comments on the first half? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yes. I. You know. You know that I have been struggling with, quote, indoor air problems for the last 40 years or something like this. And the damn thing is, 
that bothers me always. You know, you measure something and uh, in, in trace quantities, and I don't know what that does to anybody. But I like the comments on uh, carbon monoxide. In fact, I do a couple of other things. If I were to find in a house two or three ppm of carbon monoxide, which will virtually have absolutely no effect on anybody, it's, it's almost impossible, uh, I still would like to know where it comes from. Now, if you are uh, cooking in the kitchen and you have a flame going or something like that, that's one thing. And I know a couple of people got carbon monoxide poisoning uh, years ago when the hibachis came in. And it was raining outside, and I said, oh, why don't we bring the little hibachi in the kitchen? <laughs> uh, that doesn't work too well. Uh, on the other hand, uh, for, for me, the finest air pollutant that I can possibly think of is carbon monoxide, because at very low levels, that's, yeah, even if we go with the national ambient air quality uh, standards of 9 ppm, which we mentioned before or less, it virtually has absolutely no effect on you. It doesn't do anything to you. It goes on the red blood cell. It goes through the, uh, through the system, and uh, it is exhaled when the levels go down, and the red blood cell is happy as can be. It does not get killed and all of that. In fact, yeah, that was my talk three years ago at the summer camp. Last year we talked about it earlier. I talked about filtration. And I'm going to wait another three years, and then I give the same talk again on uh, carbon monoxide and on filtration because everybody has forgotten about it. Peter, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for joining us, and uh, can we bring you back for the roundup? Oh, absolutely. I will be here. All right, great. Let's bring in uh, Glenn Feldman, IE Connections. What's news? Hello, Glenn. Hello, Joe. How are you? Good, thank you. Welcome. And uh, what's what's news, Glenn? You got a couple quick ones for us? We got a little behind with technical difficulties today. No problem. First of all, I want to alert people that the July edition of IE Connections newspaper is online at ieconnections.com. We slipped in something at the last minute. We did a change-up. We got a, a great piece by Dr. Harriet Burge uh, where she answers the question, how do I test for the presence of Chinese drywall? So check that out on page 15 of our July edition. I've got some news that just came out this week that I want to uh, bring to you today. The first one's really exciting. It comes out of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. They announced this week the launch of a web-based environmental uh, public health tracking network. It is a surveillance tool that scientists, health professionals, and now for the very first time, the general public, can use to track environmental exposures and chronic health conditions. The web-based tool unites vital environmental information from across the country, including air and water pollutants and information for some chronic conditions like asthma, cancer, and childhood lead poisoning, as well as heart disease, and it puts it all into one resource. And while scientists know exposures such as air particle pollution and lead contribute to these illnesses, Many environmental and health connections remain unproven since detailed health and environmental data exists, exists in separate silos, as they say. Uh, to date, this project has led to 73 public health actions to control potential illnesses from environmental exposures. And here's a great example. Massachusetts, which ranks third in the nation for prevalence of asthma, uh, when Massachusetts tracking staff conducted asthma surveillance and indoor air quality assessments in schools, 
a significant association between mold and moisture and the prevalence of asthma was found. Based on tracking data, Massachusetts staff are now working with school officials to correct these problems and enact policies for reducing mold and moisture in their schools. Uh, for more information, listeners can uh, visit the tracking network at cdc.gov slash EPH tracking for environmental public health tracking. Sounds like we're getting some real momentum uh, on the indoor environment, huh, Glenn? We sure are. i got two more things I want to talk about uh, real quickly. Uh, the Healthy Buildings 2009 conference is coming up in Syracuse in September. A lot of people are really excited about that. I, I'll bet you anything that uh, your guest is going to be there. But uh, the early bird discount uh, uh, registration period ends early next week, I think on Tuesday. So if you haven't registered for that yet and you want to save 100 bucks, get online and do your registration now. Great idea, and also you might want to join uh, the International Society for Under Air, Indoor Air Quality and Climate and get the discount. It's pretty much, uh, I think, the discount you get on the um, on the conference pretty much pays for your membership, and they've got a great uh, monthly journal. It absolutely does. Or, I don't, maybe it's maybe All right, quarterly. My, la- <laughs> <laughs> my last story here, and this is one that I'd love to hear some commentary from from Bud on if he's uh, if he's listening to this. Uh, this is, just came out yesterday. ASHRAE has approved a change to its residential ventilation standard to encourage home retrofits to improve indoor air quality. Addendum E to ASHRAE Standard 62.2, Ventilation for Acceptable Indoor Air Quality in Low-Rise Residential Buildings, allows alternative methods for meeting the standard's requirements regarding kitchen and bathroom exhaust fans. The standard currently requires fans in those rooms, but the addendum allows for them to be removed. Uh, An example of an alternative compliance path that is allowed under the addendum would be increasing the overall whole house ventilation rate to compensate for insufficient or non-existent bathroom exhaust. Addendum E can be found at ashray.org slash 62.2E. And standard 62.2 is the only nationally recognized indoor air quality standard developed solely for residences. My question for the engineering community is, how does removing or eliminating the requirement for bathroom exhaust equate to better indoor air quality? So I, I will leave that to the engineers to explain to me. All right. Well, let me uh, let me get that question to Bud in just a moment. But before we do, we've got a, a really uh, difficult uh, announcement to make, but I want to uh, let our listeners know that uh, the Indoor Environmental Quality Field has uh, lost a notable member. I'm sorry to report the loss of Thad Goddish on June 20th. Thad received his academic training at Penn State, where he earned his Ph.D. in 1969. He joined the Ball State faculty in 1976. Dr. Goddish was a professor of natural resources and environmental management at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana, and he was a guest on IAQ Radio. His writings delve into the scientific jargon of indoor air quality and industrial hygiene while reflecting on the outdoor quality of growing up in his uh, in his native uh, country there, uh, up in, I believe that was from the Ohio area. But anyway, uh, he died June 20th at the age of 67 after a two-year battle with stomach cancer, spent a great deal of time testifying in air quality cases, and he was a preeminent name in the field. His memory will live on in the environmental industry through the four books he wrote dealing with air quality and sick buildings. And if you'd like to um, check out that uh, 
website. Uh, it is a link on our iaqradio.com website. So uh, some dif- difficult news to report to uh, the industry here, but uh, we had to do it. Now, let's move on and uh, bring Bud back in. And Bud, if we could, could you comment on that addendum E? Um, you know, I, I, it, it seems to run uh, uh, a little counterintuitively. Um, I've been mostly, uh, so I, I don't really have much to comment on the addenda E other than, um, but I will say something about 62.2 because in our research project on residential ventilation uh, in 108 California homes, we discovered there was a, a substantial error uh, associated in the ventilation effectiveness factors that ASHRAE publishes in 62.2. Uh, when you want to use, when you want to have a mechanical outdoor air system that operates intermittently, and they have a little table there, and they came out with an addenda, uh, oh, a year or two ago, uh, uh, but that also that had even a bigger error in it, and we discovered that uh, about three or three or four months ago and talked to the 62, 62.2 committee, and they are in the process of fixing that error. More importantly, though, is, uh, is a fundamental kind of problem we have coming out of the 62.2 committee where that committee believes uh, intermittent ventilation, um, you can have that and you can have equivalent indoor air quality, um, and that's based on long-term averages of ventilation and air contaminants. And the, the fact of the matter is that it just doesn't work that way. Uh, there are many air contaminants that uh, where the short-term exposure, the peak, uh, odors and irritants uh, happen in a time frame that's short. And when you have an intermittent ventilation system, um, the cycle time, if it's long, and ASHRAE currently allows cycle time to be 24 hours. So, for instance, you could have a night cooling system running at night and then have no ventilation at all during the day, and that's okay with ASHRAE. And I'm uh, very much opposed to that, as the committee knows, and I'll be working with the Environmental Health Committee of ASHRAE and with the 62.2 committee to uh, reduce the cycle times down to something like an hour or two at which point then these peak exposures are uh, pretty much muted. So that's the, my main uh, work with 62.2 now is on this intermittent ventilation issue. Now you also did, uh, you mentioned the study you did in California. I guess this was on um, ventilation, residential ventilation issues and, and IAQ measurements. And, and can you tell us a little bit, summarize a little bit um, what, what you find when doing this study? Sure. Um, by the way, the study, uh, there are several reports on our website, which is IEE-SF, as in San Francisco.com. And the full 500-page report and a very rich SAS and access data set will soon be up on that website for researchers around the world to use. But basically, um, Joe, um, this study came out of um, – and uh, uh, originally a mail survey of new single-family homes in California where it was being asked uh, whether or not people use their windows for ventilation. Because as you know, 
throughout the United States, you can build a single-family home, and for ventilation, you either have so much openable window area, or uh, you don't have to have any openable windows, but then you have to have a mechanical outdoor air system. Now, when the mail survey came back, uh, people found out that actually about a third of new of homeowners and new single-family detached California homes, um, they never use their windows. And they cite reasons about, you know, uh, it's uh, noise, security, bugs, hot, cold. All the, they just don't use their windows. So um, that's what precipitated, uh, uh, that's what it was initiated our study, was to test the hypothesis that um, uh, if people do not use their windows, ventilation rates will be very low and air contaminants that are generated indoors will be quite high. And so we did the study. It was 108 homes, 54 of them were for up in Northern California, 54 were down in Southern California, all new homes. And we put little data loggers on all the windows and doors and, and had logs for the occupants to you know, log when they cooked and cleaned. And it's, again, it's a very rich database. Uh, the results in a nutshell were we confirmed what the occupants reported in the survey. Indeed, many, like a third of them, especially, of course, in the winter months, never opened their windows. Homes in California, while they're not as, not as tight as our Canadian and Scandinavian uh, uh, people, uh, they're pretty tight homes and we're generally not a really severe climate. So hence, when you don't open your windows and you don't have a mechanical outside air system, the um, ventilation rates are quite, the air exchange rates are quite low, like 0 0.1, 0.2 air changes an hour. And consequently, contaminants that are generated within the home accumulate to pretty high concentrations. The one contaminant of the most concern, uh, and, and there were several, but was formaldehyde. And probably most of our listeners know that formaldehyde is uh, emitted uh, primarily from composite wood products. Uh, that's the, it used to be wood, it was wood, and now it's ground up wood. And it uses the uh, glue, uh, the cheapest resin system out there is a urea formaldehyde resin system. And, um, and so th that was an issue. We, we did, uh, so, uh, we did uh, recruit homes with mechanical outdoor air systems. Now, these are not very common still in California, but we did get, oh, about uh, approximately 20 or, or you know, I think about 30 systems that were mechanical outside air systems. And what we found is that the intermittent systems uh, where you just basically hang a, a, a duct connected to the return air out to the outside air, uh, those systems did not perform well at all. Uh, the heat recovery ventilators, the HRVs, which are a dual duct system, one duct taking uh, exhaust air from the bathrooms and wet spots and exhausting it through a heat exchanger and then taking outside air, bring it through the heat exchanger into the home, and those were on 24-7 continuously, they performed very well. Um, so in the end, our conclusions are that, yeah, people do not uh, use their windows. Uh, a lot of people don't use their windows for ventilation. Uh, and in those homes, uh, air exchange rates are very low and contaminants such as formaldehyde are quite elevated. As a result of this study, which is, was like a two-and-a-half-year effort of my uh, 
life. Um, three things, two, two things have changed in California. One, there are now emission uh, regulations for, there are regulations for the emission rates of formaldehyde from composite wood products. And these are, uh, they start off this year and they get stricter and stricter as we go out uh, a few years from now. Secondly, all new single family homes in California must have a mechanical outdoor air system now. So these are two big changes that uh, came out of that study. And uh, again, it'll be on our website for anyone that would like to see the full report. And we'll we'll put a uh, post up on our uh, website, if you don't mind, that uh, we'll link to yours as well, and that way we can get people a copy of that full report. Sure. But this leads me to a, a question. You know, we, we, you mentioned net zero energy buildings. Now we're saying we also, in order to have a healthy indoor environment, need ventilation. How do we mm-hmm. get to net zero buildings and still bring in outdoor air, or are we going to see someday some type of um, method for getting the indoor environment, uh, the levels of uh, off-gassing, et cetera, within acceptable range through some other mechanism? Yeah, um, well, uh, I mean, it, it, I mean, it, the, the simplistic way to save energy is, yeah, turn off the outside air, don't have any outside air. But, um, um, you know, again, health trumps energy. We, we have to first make sure we have a healthy environment. So, um, yeah, you can certainly bring outdoor air into a building and uh, in an energy efficient manner. There are many heat recovery options that are available. Um, so that would be the solution. Um, the nice thing about ventilation is that it's 100% effective at removing all air contaminants, right? whether it's viruses, uh, bacteria, uh, formaldehyde, particles, whatever, you know, it, it's all going out with the, the exhaust, the ventilation system. Um, uh, yeah, we're not, we're not going to be going to the spaceship scenario uh, all too soon where we have no outside air. And I know that's what the, that's what the, the, the ASHRAE community, and you, you must remember, in the ASHRAE community, and, and really about the U.S. Green Building Council, too, it's the same thing. For every thousand persons in, in interested in energy conservation and sustainability, there's like one of me that's saying, hey, wait a minute, um, health here. So, yeah, we're not going to have the, the air cleaning system that removes everything and we can dispense with ventilation altogether. We're going to continue to need ventilation. And in fact, we'll, we, and in some areas like uh, Houston, um, Los Angeles, these ozone non-attainment areas, um, we need to uh, have filtration for outdoor air ozone coming inside because of the fact that ozone coming in from outdoors reacts with things inside of buildings to cause nasty things like formaldehyde and ultrafine particles. So that's where we stand on that. We've got a, uh, a catch-22 in some ways. Now, let me ask, you mentioned green buildings and the green building movement. Um, from your perspective, what are we doing right with respect to green buildings? Well, you know, um, I've been a member of the technical advisory group for the Indoor Environmental Quality Group for a long time. And at a recent meeting in Washington, D.C., um, we weren't really feeling the love, you know, the, the indoor, this, this indoor 
environmental quality were kind of like the thorn in the side. All the other credit groups are doing all this good stuff, you know, water conservation, energy conservation, and but we're the people that are kind of always putting the brakes on, and uh, so we're not really feeling the love. Um, uh, you know, how are we doing? That's, that's where um, uh, it's a tough thing to do, but US, USGBC needs to do this. Um, and I, I've been uh, very opinionated on this, that you got to look at yourself a little bit. You have to evaluate how you're doing. Now, there was a recent study um, done that evaluated U.S. Green Building Councils just on the energy aspects of it. And it was, um, I don't recall the study, uh, but we can perhaps get it up onto the website, your website, sure. later. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it, it was very disappointing. Uh, the the so the green buildings you know gold platinum whatever uh, weren't performing anywhere better and sometimes worse than buildings that weren't just from an energy perspective I suspect the same thing with uh, uh, air quality too for the ones with the EQ credits but these studies need to be done and it takes courage where I guess uh, USGBC to take the time and the money and resources to look at yourself and see how you're doing because otherwise uh, there's, there's no roadmap for improvement. Are you do- I assume you're doing um, commissioning or whatever they call it for, under the, the USGBC's uh, lead program and there are points for indoor air quality. Um, I know people in the past, in the past had talked about how it was kind of difficult to to do the measurements that were required uh, to get those points. And I'm I'm just wondering, has there been any changes that you're aware of recently that made that easier? I know people used to have to follow the compendium, and that was rather right. difficult to do. Can you give us a little uh, well, update on that? Well, you know, I, I wouldn't say it's difficult to do, you know, an air pump and some samplers, uh, difficult. But, yeah, someone wants something really easy, right? Just give me uh, um, something akin to an iPhone or whatever. I could just, you know, real time, push a button, get a number. Uh, but there isn't that out there. Okay. And there are people there are people going and doing these commissioning processes with uh, real time formeldometer type stuff and uh, – Real-time particle counters, uh, but those uh, are do not meet the uh, the credit. And if it audited, you know, you you lose your credit. So um, at this point in time, it, it's not really overly burdensome. So whoever's saying that, uh, I, uh, I I wouldn't say at all overly, but it does require um, a, a pump and air sampling for a few hours in the building. Okay, and and. You've got to have some pretty tight quality control and all of those things, but so you're saying that you know it's really not as bad as people make it out to be. No, absolutely not. Yeah, the quality control is pretty much at the lab end, um, and, and the sampling is fairly straightforward. Okay, great. Well, I, I appreciate your frankness on that one, and that that helps me helps clarify something for me. That's for sure. Um, what about uh, it's not not difficult, I guess. The, I got a comment from a listener saying it's really not difficult. It's just not well defined, especially for total VOCs. Do you have any comment right. on that? Yeah, absolutely. No, I agree. Uh, and um, 
uh, let me say this, that one of the things that you're going to see hopefully come out of U.S. Stream Building Council, uh, and this will be in all the credits, you know, whether it's uh, environmental credits for sure and perhaps the others, uh, lighting, acoustics, is um, uh, let's go to this credit 3.2 where the people do the air sampling. You can either flush out the building, right, or you can do the air sampling. Um, I think what we're going to require now in the future is that everyone must sample the air in the building. Um, and you have to do the air sampling, and that's going to be a, like a prerequisite. To, and the point is to get the data. Now, what we do with the data, uh, getting the data is the, the main thing, and then if we award points to it or, or so, fine. Um, regarding the TVOC, uh, the total volatile organic compounds is pretty much meaningless. Uh, what you want to know is the individual volatile organic compounds and uh, similar to what we have for the architectural specification for 1350 in California, where you're measuring VOCs um, and you're interpreting them against the framework for the chronic reference exposure levels that uh, California publishes. So, um, yeah, look for a change coming in the future, going away from TVOCs and measuring individual volatile organic compounds. Well, you got somebody's uh, attention here that was uh, texting in. It, uh, I think they agree oh. with you 100%. Anyway, but I've got a bunch of more questions here. We have some technical difficulties. What I'd like to do, I'm going to kind of do this randomly. I have a couple from Cliff that I know he specifically wanted to get in. So uh, let's start with what is your preference in ductwork construction materials? Uh well, let's 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 reverse it. Let's talk what we don't like, right? All right. We don't like uh, we don't like fiberglass, you know. And it's not the next asbestos or anything, but uh, it's not a hygienic, uh, not a, a good hygiene system for uh, uh, ventilation uh, ductwork. Yeah, uh, we'd like to have non-porous uh, surfaces on the duct. Certainly, sheet metal is good, um, but uh, yeah, definitely not uh, fiberglass board ducts. Okay, let me ask you another one. Um, why, this is from Cliff, why do such a high percentage of new homes constructed in California end up in litigation over construction defects? What are the primary uh, yeah. alleged shortfalls here? Yeah, yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm not sure if that's, that, that's a correct fact, but let's just for now assume that it's, that it's somewhat correct or whatever. Okay. I, I'm, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Um, um, we're a fast-growing uh, population in California, a lot of home building. This is true of our sister state, Nevada. Um, a lot of homes going up very quickly, you know, probably too quickly to be really built uh, correctly. Um, we also have in California, as you know, we're very environmentally conscious, uh, perhaps more so than uh, many other parts of the country. Um, Washington State is very environmentally conscious too. It just seems that um, maybe it's because we get all that fresh air coming off the Pacific Ocean and then you guys back east get all our dirty exhaust air and we're just very sensitive to clean air. I don't know. Um, but uh, there's a fair amount of construction defect uh, work uh, throughout the United States and I, I don't know that it's especially high in uh, California. Let me add, this is one from me. I, I hear this uh, discussion from time to time, and I, maybe you can verify this for me, that on slab-on-gray construction, are they still using sand underneath the uh, uh, the vapor yeah. barrier? 
Uh, yeah, is that, is that stupid or what? Uh, yeah. I was just, okay, <laughs> just, just checking. <laughs> no, yeah, it's it's uh, they, you know, uh, why they do that. I'm, well, I know. Well, yeah, yeah, not on, not under the vapor, you know. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, putting the sand on top on of the top. vapor. Uh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, on top of it. And with the idea, well, some of well, it's protecting the vapor retarder. Uh, well, we don't care if there's a little hole here or there. It's 99% contiguous. But it does, uh, it does, I guess the one thing it does do is, you know, you wet that sand, you put the concrete on. You can, you, it can help in the curing of the concrete. But there are other ways to do that with building it uh, correctly, which means not putting sand underneath the concrete. All right. That's that's what we need. I, I love when you're frank with us here. That's that's excellent. Listen, I uh, what I'd like to do, Bud, can you hang around for about five more minutes? Sure, no problem. Okay, we ran a little behind on the start here, and um, I'm hoping that we can get Glenn Feldman and um, Dr. Dieter unmuted. And uh, while we're doing that, I'm just curious, do you have any comment on um, uh, Dr. Dieter seems pretty adamant that those low levels of carbon monoxide in homes um, – aren't going to cause any health problems would would you agree or disagree with that um well you know i i if you look at the data behind the nine parts per million carbon monoxide uh guideline um uh i i would say that there are some sensitive populations where that type of exposure might be something um it needs to be looked at further the main thing that i think Dieter and i agree on that if you have uh, even a slight elevation, but significant, a couple ppm higher indoors and outdoors, that represents a significant risk factor that needs to be resolved. Excellent. Okay, let's go to uh, Glenn Feldman. Glenn, do we have you? I'm here. Question or comment, Glenn? I got a question. I'm going to turn uh, the subject around a little bit. Um, Bud, obviously we're in an uh, amazing time in, uh, in the history of our country with the economy where it is. I talk to a lot of indoor environmental consultants who tell me that things are tough. Uh, what's your advice to those out there who are uh, feeling the pinch of the economy and are looking for perhaps uh, ways to use their expertise as indoor environmental consultants in, uh, in some of the new uh, emerging areas like energy conservation and green buildings? Well, I, 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 you know, a lot of the tools that, you know, training and getting retrained into the energy field is certainly one thing. Um, our firm doing about half of our work is forensic work and half is uh, non-forensic work. The non-forensic work, uh, you know, we need to check our air or whatever, and that's definitely been contracting, and, and it always has in economically tough times. Uh, on the converse, uh, what makes us some, our firm somewhat recession-proof is that when you have these economic turn, downturns, the forensic end just really picks up. Uh, where in good times, someone might have somewhat of a problem, construction defect, and they're like, oh, okay, that's, you know, whatever, we'll get by with it. Economic times are tough. People are like, okay, let's sue. So, um, um, but yeah, I would say the energy uh, uh, business is booming. So if you're in the building stuff business and you're doing environmental stuff, uh, getting your getting retooled into the energy aspects, I think, is a good idea. Great, thank you. But let me follow up on that. Uh, any specific recommendations with respect to where to get this type of education and being retooled in the energy end of things? 
Um, well, you, as you know, the uh, the weatherization in the residential markets, there's the whole uh, HERS rating system, and uh, there's training programs. Uh, this is in, I'm speaking now from my home state, California, but I would look in your own state for weatherization programs and then look for their training, and uh, you'll find it there. Great. Okay. Dr. Dieter, do we have you on the line? Well, yes, I'm here. I, am I unmuted? You are unmuted. You are live. Well, Any questions I, I know or I stood on this program before. Maybe I'm a little bit lucky that I bought a house that was built uh, 40 years ago, and it leaks like a sieve. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I have no formaldehyde. Well, I have no formaldehyde furniture in the place anyway. But I have no no problem with carbon monoxide, indoor air pollution, formaldehyde, and all of that, whether I want it or not. On top of it, I leave my windows open, and uh, when you know, when whenever possible. Now, on the other hand, I do believe that you know, I, I one should think about better insulation, and I I am I'm guilty of this. Uh, it costs me a little bit more over here. But I think we can build buildings a lot better than we did 40 years ago. And we should not just, you know, close our eyes and say, hey, tighten it up, tighten it up, tighten it up. I think we have to look at it. And I want outside air in it. And ASHRAE was, you know, we talked about it, 62.2 and so on before. Uh, they're very well aware of the fact that it is a damn good idea to get some fresh air into the living space. <laughs> Mm-hmm. All right, there. Well, thanks again for joining us. But before we go, um, Cliff had one more question, and I'm just kind of going back through. First of all, I really wanted to talk about the ASHRAE IAQ design guide, so maybe mm-hmm. I can get a quick plug-in on that for you. Could you tell us just real quickly um, mm-hmm. what that was all about, and um, maybe we could tell people how to get a hold of it? Uh, no, not really. I, I've not... I've been busy on so many other things. I, it, it's, uh, uh, I, I think it's still a work in progress. I don't think it's out yet, is it? That's what I was wondering. I, I really don't know, and I know I thought you were pretty yeah. involved with that. No, no. Um, there's just yeah, you have to pick your uh, battles here. That uh, <laughs> one, one I haven't really been uh, involved with directly at all. Um, I, I've seen drafts of it, and quite frankly, I haven't really. Uh, looked at it at all so uh we'll have to keep post keep our eyes out for that all right and i we would love to have you back but before you go i got one more that i had to ask this is uh from from my co-host cliff is the california air resources board really leading the way with voc and other regulations or is it excessive governmental interference Oh, no. Uh, well, uh, first question, yes, they are leading the way. And two, is it excessive governmental interference? Uh, it's so much a, a somewhat of a political opinion. I would say absolutely not. Um, California has a long, long history of leading uh, uh, environmental uh, regulations for this country. And uh, I am not aware of any false starts pretty much every regulation we've developed here, and not just indoor air quality, but all the outdoor air quality, including a 
re- very recently, uh, auto emissions uh, have been quickly adopted by the rest of the country. So uh, it's not like we've been going off on a tangent and just like crazy uh, California people. Uh, for whatever reason, uh, we, we're very t- uh, attentive to the environmental issues, and um, we are uh, definitely leading the way um, in that field, and I, I don't think uh, we're overly regulative at all. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I really want to thank you, first of all, for joining us this week, Bud Offerman. Uh, we will get the link up to your website and that research we talked about earlier after the show. And I hope maybe we can bring you back on sometime. Okay, go San Francisco Giants. (laughs) All right, bud. Thanks again. Uh, Before we go, I want to say thanks to my co-host, Cliff Slotnick, and uh, our wingman, Chris Boisel, back in the studio. We had some technical difficulties today, but hopefully the TalkShoe backup system will get this recording and we'll be able to uh, archive it with the rest. I also want to thank Glenn Feldman for joining us with IE Connections What's News, and of course Dr. Dieter for joining us as our technical director as he does every week. Before we go, I also want to let people know that next week we've got Dr. Felicia Cianciarulli on. Next week uh, we're going to talk a little more about uh, microbiology. Uh, we're going to talk about bacteria and mycology issues. Uh, she's been on before and uh, only for part of a show, so we're going to bring her back next week and have a great time with that. But before we go, most importantly, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. Please come back and join us next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. <laughs>